Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace theology segment. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to conclude our very month brief, month-long uh, series talking about the meaning of theological words as it pertains to the personal work of Christ. And this doesn't mean that we're, there aren't other words to talk about. It just means that we're, we don't, there's only four weeks in December, and we're covering four weeks. We'll come back to this again next uh, December and perhaps throughout the year. Uh, because it's important. So today, one of our listeners uh, writes in, and they have a great question. The question is, what is adoption? And adoption is one of the primary benefits of the saving work of Jesus Christ applied to the elect by faith in Christ alone. As we looked at last week in justification, God vindicates guilty sinners in the divine law court by declaring them righteous in his sight. So in adoption, he makes the justified his beloved children with whom he dwells. And according to God's covenant promise, believers are made sons and daughters of God, heirs according to the promise of redemption. And like justification, adoption is a once-for-all, non-repeatable act of God. And though distinguished from the ongoing process of sanctification, adoption ensures the restoration of God's likeness in his adopted sons and daughters. The doctrine of adoption is taught in redemptive history in the Old Testament types. It is fulfilled in Christ, and it comes to full spiritual fruition in the New Testament. As with the other benefits of redemption, the Holy Spirit is particularly revealed in our adoption. That is, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of adoption, and on the basis of his work in this act of redemption— So the doctrine of adoption is, as we're talking about, one of the central benefits of redemption being applied to our account because of the person and work of Christ. In justification, if we remember, God forgives guilty sinners and accepts them as righteous in his sight only on account of the blood and the righteousness of Christ alone. And so in adoption, he brings those who were once enemies into the family of God, giving them an eternal inheritance. And in this way, the benefits of Christ's uh, death and resurrection, it brings sinners from the law court to the living room of God. Uh, through adoption, logically, follows justification in the order salutis. That is the, the, the timing of when everything happens in salvation. It is no less important in Christ's experience. That is to say, adoption is similar to justification and different from progressive sanctification in that it's a one-time act of God. And knowing God, J.I. Packer famously observed, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of of being God's child and having God as his father. The English Puritans held that adoption was a central benefit of redemption in so much as it encompasses the totality of what it means to be brought into a saving relationship with God as our Father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray our Father in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. The Apostle Paul noted that every believer has the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, in Romans 8.15. 
The Christian life cannot be lived in fruitful service to God unless it is lived in light of the truth of the believer's sonship in union with Jesus Christ. And when believers fail to live in light of their sonship, they're going to assume a slave mentality with regard to their relationship with God. And this sonship is rooted in the eternal relationship between the Father and God the Father and God the Son. There is only one eternally begotten, infinitely beloved Son of God. This sonship is also rooted in the Son's covenantal standing they obtained by accomplishing the work of redemption. And though the Son is eternally the Son of the Father within the Godhead, according to his humanity and redemptive history, he gained a covenantal standing as the adopted Son by accomplishing the work of redemption. As Psalm 2 predicted, the Messianic King would achieve the right to be adopted as the covenant, covenantal Son of God and the head of a new humanity. This is not to be confused with the early church's teaching on adoptionism of the heretic Arius. Rather, Jesus is the eternal Son of God who, as the head of the redeemed humanity, the last Adam, gained a covenantal status of sonship on account of his saving work. And therefore, all who trust in Jesus Christ now have the right and the privilege to a being children of God, as we see in John 1.12. Now, the doctrine of redemption is built both on the Son's relationship to the Father within the Godhead and on the promise of the everlasting inheritance in the covenant of grace. In redemptive history, there were allusions to the doctrine of sonship from Adam to Israel and Israel to Christ. And in the New Testament, the adoption of believers is rooted in Jesus' eternal relationship to his father and in his redeeming work as the last Adam. In Jesus' genealogy, Adam is called the son of God in Luke 3.38. For God made Adam in his own image and likeness. And all that to say, Adam marred the image and likeness of God, bringing himself and all his offspring into the bondage of sin. And since the fall, all mankind uh, proceeding from Adam by ordinary generation are slaves of sin rather than sons of God. The history of redemption is the history of God turning slaves into sons by forgiving their sins and restoring his image in those who he redeems through his eternal son. And when he redeemed Old Covenant Israel from their bondage in Egypt, God was forming a covenant people who would function as his corporate firstborn son in the world in Exodus 4.22. Adam was the protological son of God. Israel was the typological son of God. Both Adam and Israel anticipated the coming of Christ, the eternal son of God, the last Adam and the true Israel. And when Jesus came into the world, he fulfilled everything that Adam and Israel failed to fulfill, thereby securing the adoption and everlasting inheritance for Christians. Now, the theological concept of the firstborn is central to the doctrine of adoption in the history of Israel and redemptive history. That is, because the firstborn was to be consecrated to God from the womb, as we see in Exodus 13, 1-2 and Exodus 22:29. God pronounced judgment on all the firstborn of Egypt as the climax of his plagues, since Israel was his firstborn son, as we see in Exodus 4.23 and Exodus 12.29. The firstborn son was the heir of the father's inheritance, according to Deuteronomy 21.16. In the New Testament, the concept of the Old Covenant inheritance is expanded and it's fulfilled. The firstborn son and the inheritance were typological of the new covenant blessing of our saving adoption in union with Christ. 
The writer of Hebrews expressly declared that Jesus is the heir of all things in Hebrews 1-2. And as the son of Abraham, Jesus received the covenantal promises of God, kept the law of God perfectly, and took the curse of the law in his own body on a tree. By his life, by his death, by his resurrection, Jesus merited the everlasting inheritance promised to Abraham by faith. And by faith, every believer becomes a firstborn son, an heir of the uh, everlasting promise in the firstborn son, Jesus Christ, according to Romans 8.17, Galatians 3.29, and Titus 3.7. Now, the Holy Spirit is the primary agent, we must say, of adoption in so much as he unites the believer to the Son and applies the saving work of the Son to Christians. And nevertheless, the Father and the Son are both active in the work of adoption as well. The Spirit assures believers that they are children of God. The Apostle Paul explains the significance of the role of the Spirit in the adoption of uh, believers in Romans and Galatians. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. In Galatians 4, 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul ties together the work of the Son and the Spirit in bringing about adoption of the new covenant believers when he says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of women, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent uh, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And although adoption is a once-for-all, non-repeatable blessing of redemption, there is still an eschatological, that means an end times or a last times, uh, aspect to it. That is, in Romans 8.23, the Apostle Paul explains that believers groan inwardly, eagerly awaiting uh, the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so the bodily resurrection on the last day will be the full manifestation of our redemption. Now, we need to say that the Reformation was not simply a recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It was a recovery of the biblical doctrine of adoption. The Westminster Divines uh, summarize the essence of the doctrine of adoption in this way in the Westminster Larger Catechism 74, when they said adoption is an act of the free grace of God and uh, in and only for his son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those who are, that are justified and are received into the number of his children have his name put upon them, the spirit of his son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispositions, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of the promises of God, and fellow heirs with the glory of Christ. R.C. Sproul, in his article, The Eternal Love of God, in the, in the Table Talk magazine, says this, because of the Father's love for Christ, the Father has adopted us into the royal family, making us join heirs with Christ. We are beloved of the Father because He is beloved of the Father, and we ought never forget that. He is the eternal object of the Father's affection, and we are the Father's gift of love to His Son. We are adopted by the Father in Christ, and the Father loves us because we are in the Son. You know, one of the cardinal benefits that believers receive by faith in Jesus Christ, adoption is perhaps the most overlooked doctrine. 
We, we've talked last week about uh, justification and sanctification is part of our day-to-day life as believers. But adoption is important as well, and understanding it and resting in its precious truth can bear fruit in the life of Christians. So here's five things that you need to know. First, adoption is one of the benefits of our union with Christ. Like justification and sanctification, adoption accrues to believers by virtue of their union with Christ alone. The Westminster Catechism in uh, 70.74 says, Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put on them, the spirit of a son given to them, and are under his fatherly care and dispositions, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises, and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. And so adoption, we can say, is a one-time definitive act that flows from the work of Jesus Christ and brings us into the family of God with all the privileges and statuses that it brings. Second, adoption means becoming a member of the family of God. That is, in our natural state, we are alienated from the family of God. We are of the devil, enslaved to sin, as we see in John 8, 44, and in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But in adoption, we are received into the family of God and numbered among his children. The apostle Paul writes of this glorious change in status in Ephesians 2.19 when he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Third, adoption means that we have God as our father. In the late 19th century, the prominent liberal theologian Adolf von Harnack distilled the essence of Christianity down to two truths, the universal brotherhood of man and the universal fatherhood of God. And while God is the creator of all people, he does not stand in a fatherly relationship to all people. To have God as one's father and to be a son of God is a privilege reserved for those who have been adopted into his family, as we've seen in John 1.12. This is why the Apostle Paul says this in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It's why the Pharisees were so scandalized by Jesus calling God his Father in John 5, 18, and why Jesus taught his disciples to pray to God as their Father in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9. Fourth, adoption means we have access to God. One of the great tragedies of Roman Catholic theology is its theology of the saints. Roman Catholics are taught that God is too busy to hear their prayers, and so they should ask the saints, especially the Virgin Mary, to intercede on their behalf. Well, that's horrible. That's erroneous doctrine. Because true believers have no need to ask for intercession, for through Christ, the one and true mediator, true Christians have access to God himself, as we see in John 14, 13, through 14, excuse me, and 1 Timothy 2, 5. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 18. For through him we have both, uh, that is, Jewish and Gentile believers, have access in one spirit to the Father. While fifth, adoption means that we have rights as sons of God. That is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God by nature, and we are sons of God by adoption. And that status brings with it a host of rights and benefits that we enjoy alongside of our older brother. Those rights and those benefits, they include the gift of the Spirit, the bestowal of the the name of God, freedom from the slavery of the law, and share in the suffering and glory of Christ. And especially, we have an inheritance that is stored up for those who are in Christ. In Romans 8, 14 through 17, Paul says this, 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So as we wrap up today, here's the last thought. Maybe live in the comfort and confidence that comes with knowing that our Heavenly Father has adopted us in love. I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next week, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.